This is The Politics Lab, a podcast that puts politics under a microscope. On this week's episode, Bill and Phil ponder what the end of the war in Ukraine might look like, assess whether the growing list of indictments is having any impact on support for Donald Trump, debate whether disinformation is in fact free speech, and close with a look at the San Antonio Wax Museum, which had to pull the Trump exhibit because people kept punching it in the face. Now, let's go to the lab. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Politics Lab. My name is Bill Muck, and I'm a professor of political science at North Central College, and I'm joined by my colleague and best friend, Dr. Phil Barker, who's a professor of political science at Keene State College. Hey, Phil. Hey, Bill, how are you? I, I'm great, and I can't wait to talk about a wax museum where people are punching <laughs> Trump in the face. You know, listeners, hold on to the end. This is going to be totally worth it. You're going to want to hear more about all of this. <laughs> You, I mean, you have a long history of punching wax figures, right? It's it's what I do. Yeah, it's just uh, there's a real sense, you know, meaningful sensation that comes from from punching a all variety of of, of wax figures. I don't want to get too deep into it because we've got time for later, but that's uh, it's going to be a good one. So, uh, also, you know, we're, another story we're well, we're not going to be able to get to is uh, Sam Alito's in the news. We've we've been hearing this uh, uh, ProPublica, which is is the news organization that has dropped a lot of stories about Clarence Thomas. Uh, it revealed a story, let's see here, at midnight, another Supreme Court scandal. This time, uh, it's Justice Samuel Alito, who was taking undisclosed luxury travel gifts. Uh, what, a fishing trip to Alaska with a hedge fund billionaire who had was in front of the, the court, what, 10 times or something? You know, a repeat offender in front of the court. Um, got a private jet that would have cost $100,000 to charter. Um, Alito's defense was the, the seat was going to be open. I just took the, you know, nobody was going to be sitting there. Oh. Um, <laughs> Oh, Phil, what's, what's the Supreme Court? This is kind of wild. Yeah. I mean, who hasn't taken a $100,000 vacation from someone whom you had business with yeah. in the past? But uh, yeah, I mean, I, you and I have talked about this. Like, I, again, like I'm working at a state a state university, like the, the number of like the amount, even when I was in a private school, like any institution, the conflict of interest stuff, like anything that dealt with like, I don't know, I'm going to have a conversation with my wife about money. It had to be disclosed. And so like to see this happening at the Supreme Court and, you know, all of their stuff about, I don't know, there's like this, it feels like the court has this kind of, uh, arrogance about how right proper or above the fray they are and yeah i mean it's i don't know i mean it's it's kind of unbelievable to see all of this coming out in such a short period of time i, I don't know is it unbelievable or should we not be all that shocked by the fact that the the court is uh, problematic we probably shouldn't be shocked but it's still a big deal right i mean you know the idea that that a lot of, a number of the justices are hanging out with billionaires and taking expensive trips and then i think with sort of the iron not irony but you know it's a, it's a little audacious for Alito. He released, he sort of preempted the story by writing an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal, sort of justifying and saying that ProPublic is full of it. And my favorite part about all this is that if you want to go read this, there's a paywall, right? So it's only rich <laughs> Wall Street Journal, you know, affording people can read Alito's defense of himself. Um, you know, he said that, I guess uh, I guess it's like $1,000 a night at this, this fishing resort, but he said it was very rustic. Um, you know, it, it was not real fancy. And that, you know, somebody said that the wine, one of the bottles of wine cost $1,000 and he didn't think it was that good, didn't think it probably was $1,000. So, no, I think this is, it's troubling when you've got, I mean, officials with so much power being a little too close with, with money. Yeah. So if, if somebody spends like uh, tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars on you, but you're mildly dissatisfied with the thing that they spent, then it doesn't count as like bribery or impropriety. No, right? no it doesn't compromise you. You're still as objective as ever. Uh, no. As long as you're not impressed by the money they spent on you, it's fine. It's good. <laughs> I still remember like the first job interview when I went on, went on where they actually had a car pick me up at the airport. I thought I'd won the lottery. Like this was the best thing in the world. I didn't realize that like, you know, there are people who get private jets and vacations know. and you know clarence thomas they're buying and, and fixing up his mother's house and paying for tuition i mean we're missing out on a lot of good perks i know i know we should have more important jobs yes so all right well before we dive in i want to remind everybody how they can stay connected with us 
Yeah. So the website is thepoliticslab.com. And again, you can find all our old episodes there. Um, and for each episode, you can click on the episodes page. And there are a list of uh, there are a series of links to readings that are relevant this week. There's only, I think, three up this week. But um, we're going to have a, a, I think, an interesting conversation about a new article in foreign affairs. You can find that linked on the website as well. So um, you can also find links to all of our social media stuff, email addresses. All of that is your, your one stop shop is thepoliticslab.com. That sounds great. All right, we are going to start in Ukraine and kind of thinking about how that war may come to an end. So, so as the war in Ukraine grinds grinds on amidst Russian and Ukrainian offensives and counteroffensives, uh, the question of what the end of the war in Ukraine might look like has arisen. It's getting some conversation. Uh, well, it doesn't always feel that way. Wars do come to an end, but they don't always end the way we expect. Uh, as Phil mentioned, the latest issue of Foreign Affairs has a number of articles kicking around just how, when, and what the end to the war might actually look like. Uh, One article by the historian Margaret Macmillan caught our attention. In that piece, she draws powerful parallels to previous wars, in particular World War I, noting that many assumed that wars among 21st century powers would not be like earlier ones. Instead, they would be fought using a new generation of advanced technologies and would play out in space or cyberspace. And that has proven wrong, uh, as the trenches and battlefields in Ukraine have a haunting similarity to World War I. Uh, she also notes that just like World War I, the belligerents thought the war would be short and decisive, only to be proven war uh, wrong. Uh, Macmillan sees a dark warnings about the end of the Ukraine war, writing, quote, When the war in Ukraine finally comes to an end, Ukraine and its supporters may well hope for an overwhelming victory and the fall of the Putin regime. Yet if Russia is left in turmoil, bitter, and isolated with many of its leaders and people blaming others for its failures, as so many Germans did in those interwar decades, then the end of the war could simply lay the groundwork for another, unquote. That's a really powerful little passage there. Other writings, uh, others writing about the end of the war to Ukraine have argued that while the Western response was clear to counter Russian aggression, there was no vision for the end game of the war. In fact, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan acknowledged this in 2020. 22 stating quote we have in fact refrained from laying out what we see as an end game we have been focused on what we can do today tomorrow next week to strengthen ukrainians hand first on the battlefield and then ultimately at the negotiating table unquote the question now is whether it's time to start having those conversations about what the end of the war should look like and what the u.s position on that end should be Phil, so there's still much in flux regarding the war in ukraine but it does appear that a decisive victory for either side is likely not on the cards. So this is a really, really big topic. Where where do you want to start? I well, so I found this article. Let's just start with this yeah. this, this argument from McMillan. I, I found this article really fascinating. Like I said, you can find a link to it on on the webpage. Um, but this this comparison to World War One and and the similarities was really fascinating to me. I mean, you and I have have you know we've we've read about we've talked about World War One before, um, but for her to sort of lay out the the parallels was really fascinating. And the first thing I thought about was um, uh, you and I. I think well, I, I know I do. I think you used to teach about in in foreign uh, policy talking about the power of analogies, yes. right? So uh, how analogies do so much um, in in uh, our our worldview. They help us, you know, they help us understand, uh, they help us, you know, they help us, um, come up with strategies, uh, that might work. They help us sort of, you know, make sense of, of things. They help us uh, understand kind of the normative, the right and wrong of, of stuff. But, um, uh, and and you can see that, right? Like when I teach about this in my class, I talk about, you know, when we got to, the Iraq war, there were all these people, some people who used the Vietnam analogy, some who used the the World War II analogy and talking about Iraq and and those the analogies you pick have these really big impacts on things. So I I think that analogies are really really useful. I, I think the other takeaway is that you also have to be careful because no analogy is perfect. But as as Macmillan went through and laid these out, I I found this really fascinating in a way I I had not thought in detail about the World War One analogy so much in in Ukraine, and and her argument is really fascinating. I think in particular, um, I, I mean I, there's so many elements of it. But part part of it, the ones that really stood out were the aspect, which is you've kind of brought up in the in the introduction, which is um, going back to World War One, like you, you can feel already this 
not not entirely global, but but this sort of almost global desire to punish Russia for for this um, for this war in Ukraine, and it is it is an understandable desire from kind of a justice standpoint. But that was this kind of overwhelming desire in World War One as well, and that like that desire to sort of crush to break Germany is what led to World War Two, and so that you know it, it is this this need to think forward, not just a year or two to the end of of the Ukraine war, but this need to think forward a decade or two decades to what becomes of Russia? What, how do we like, how do we reintegrate Russia into the international system so that, you know, uh, uh, treating them as a pariah is desirable, but it doesn't necessarily bring about the desired desired ends, which is, you know, a, a more peaceful and, um, uh, functional international society. So I, I really like that. I think it's it's this warning to people as we think about the end of the war. And you and I have talked about this, looking for off ramps, trying to figure out ways to bring an end to this war is difficult because it is reasonable to to not want to give at all, right? Like, and, and it's understandable why, certainly why Ukraine would want that, right? Where we will accept nothing less than sort of a total expulsion of Russia, total victory. Um, but the repercussions of that or the implications of that are, uh, um, uh, they're I don't know, potentially dangerous, I guess. So, I, I mean, I, that's that's one thing that has stood out to me. I mean, what what do you what do you think? About yeah, no, that? I think it's really fascinating because I think we're we're right to point out that the the conversation is really about how we fight the war right now, right? You know, tactics giving uh, Ukraine more weapons, and we're not even really thinking about how we end that war. But what McMillan is thinking about, not just the end of it, but how that end will implicate years afterwards, what you said, like the decade mm-hmm. afterwards. And so we think about the Versailles Treaty. It's such a really, really interesting example after World War One, which was really punitive. It was about punishing Germany. Uh, and that punitive decision really created the space for a sense of nationalism, alienation, frustration, gave rise or gave space for somebody like Hitler to rise, right? And she's saying that uh, the international community is going to have to think creatively about about a solution that doesn't create that environment. And it sets up, I love your point about analogy, because I think you hear you hear sort of two analogies for the Ukraine war. One is the Versailles example from World War One, where they were too hard on Germany. And the other is Munich, right? World War II, where mm-hmm. they weren't hard enough on Hitler, right? That they, you know, there was appeasement, and and appeasement is what led to, you know, further troubles, right? So, and and they're 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 different analogies, and and some people draw on the first one to say we really, you know, we need to stick it to to Russia, and the other one is well, you don't want to be too hard. So I think it's sort of fascinating these these narratives and analogies that we can use to to structure our thoughts, um, and I love that she's sort of thinking more long term about that. Uh, um, and, and again, what that ending looks like, there's still so much work left to be done. So yeah, I love, I love historical analogies. I, and so as you were talking, I was thinking I'll, I'll sort yeah. of be the, the devil's advocate or whatever here, not against you, but sort of against this, uh, the, I, I, I I am sympathetic to the appeasement argument as well, yeah. right? Like that somebody like Vladimir Putin, if left alone, if is, you know, is allowed to sort of get away with this sort of stuff, um, uh, it, it potentially later destabilizes the international community. It's more dangerous in the long run, et cetera. But this is a good example of where you have to be aware of the differences in analogies. I, I think the treatment of Crimea, um, when, when Russia took Crimea, might fit the appeasement analogy a little bit. But right now, it would be hard to argue that we we have that the West or the international community has in any way appeased Russia, right? I mean, from the outset of this invasion, they've been punished. It's been made very clear economic sanctions, you know, fund fuel like this, you know, if the international community with, you know, the whatever, when, when Germany was, was annexing Czechoslovakia and stuff like that had responded the way the West is responding now in Ukraine, it might have gone differently. And so I think that's where you have to, the international community has to be willing to say, yeah, appeasement is bad, but we're not appeasing here. Like we've done a lot. And, and the real danger is, is not recognizing that some level, it's not even appeasement, some level of flexibility. I mean, that's the other lesson of World War II with, with uh, Japan, like this insistence on unconditional surrender often is what drags wars out and costs lives more than, than, uh, you know, than, than uh, anyway, that that in and of itself is, is a danger to be avoided as well. Well, absolutely. Right. And then, and then we think about, okay, if we start to get to the nuts and bolts of what a solution or what an endpoint for the Ukraine war would be, 
does that involve Ukraine giving up some of its territory or Russia retaining the Crimean Peninsula, right? So maybe they get Crimea, uh, maybe they get chunks of of part of where those pro-Russian parts of Ukraine are. Like, is that appeasement or is that simply (laughs) a way to you know, defuse, right? When you hear Zelensky talk, he wants all of that territory back plus Crimea, right? Um, I I think if you're going to have a negotiated solution, it's probably, you're not going to probably get to that point. Um, So, right, how do you understand and frame that? And if you're coming into it, you know, with Zelensky's perspective to say that uh, we have to have all this territory back, you're probably not going to have a negotiated solution anytime in the near future. So these, these analogies are really sort of interesting as you start to think about how do they drive our thinking. Well, and there's this interesting dynamic as well, which is like how much of this is up to Ukraine versus how much of this is up to right. sort of Western powers. And if Ukraine is insistent on not giving up any territory, then even if the U.S. or Western allies see that as problematic, do do we allow, you know, in a world of sovereignty, do we allow Ukraine to have its uh, so its own determination of endpoints? Uh, you know, it, it's this contrast, potential contrast right now, Ukraine ends or Ukrainian interests and American interests or Western interests are interests are very much in, in alignment. But as you get closer to the end of the war, they may not be in alignment um, in the same way. And then how do you navigate that as well? It's just it becomes incredibly complex, right? This is I mean, when people talk about like the crime of aggression, it is because when you st- start a war, it opens the door to all of this, all the killing, all the complexity, all the difficulty, the difficult decisions of, I, again, I just finished teaching Michael Walzer this idea of your rights or some of your lives, right? I mean, this is what is being laid before the Ukrainian people right now, right? Do you, are you willing to give up any of your, I mean, they shouldn't have to give up any of their land or their rights, but that decision is being forced upon them. This is, this is really, this is absolutely right. And one of the other articles in Foreign Affairs was talking about that we've fallen into this trap of assuming that military advancements are going to lead to a solution to this, right? So we think that if the yeah. if if Ukraine's counteroffensive is successful and they are able to retake their territory, that'll simply end the war. That's not true, right? I mean, they will have made military advancements. Maybe it increases their position at the negotiating table. But we've put so much into what's happening on the ground um, that we kind of forget that the the end game, those solutions, are very, very, very different than the process of of, of sort of gaining and losing. territory territory and and basically what we're seeing is trench warfare right now so it's yeah that you know all of that like how do you get past what's happening on the battlefield to the negotiating table to actually coming up with some sort of resolution and and the longer i mean this was another point that mcmillan made in her argument which is the longer this drags on the more the sort of emotions and symbolism and stuff plays into it right where i mean there was just this battle fought in ukraine that lasted months that that cost you know hundreds of thousands of casualties for you know cities and land that were of questionable strategic there it's all symbolic uh, interest and value at this point and so when it gets captured when it gets wrapped up around these sort of symbol the symbolism of victory, that's even harder and harder to find a solution to than, you know, where where we are fighting over this plot of land because it is strategically important. And so we can come to some sort of compromise on it. And so that's only going to get, you know, again, as Russia gets more desperate, becomes more um, brutal. And it's, I mean, again, it's already, you know, I think the, the list of, of war crimes will be, is very, very long, but uh, knowing Putin, he's not going to change that. It's only going to get worse. And so the the willingness of Ukrainians to in any way compromise is also going to be, uh, you know, decreased as we go on. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the longer this plays out, the harder and harder a solution becomes. And, and there was, I'm trying to think if it was in the Macmillan article or something else I read this week, but they talked about, like, if you look at warfare, basically from World War II on, um, 25% of wars are ended in less than a month. Another 25, 26% end within a year. But if you go beyond a year, a lot of those wars then go on to average about 10 years, right? And so Ukraine hmm. has now passed that over a two year, I mean, basically a couple of years in. So that may mean to your point that we're looking at a long drawn on drawn out conflict where maybe you don't even have a solution. And you see some people talking about an armistice, right? So to take another example, another analogy, 
you look at the Korean War and say, well, maybe you don't get a formal end to the war. You just agree to stop fighting. That's sort of an interesting perspective as you think about Ukraine, because I don't think either side is capable of maybe winning this war, but they're also capable of not losing it. So, you know, you're maybe looking at a, a, a solution that is simply, let's just stop the fighting for a while, um, which is an imperfect solution as well, right? That may be the leading option at this point. That's that's really interesting. Yeah, I mean that that would be uh, to think about how that would play out, um, whether it's a demilitarized zone or a, you know whatever is is kind of fascinating. But that's not again that's that's a that is a temporary solution. That again, long term. Yeah. Right? I mean, nobody looks at North Korea, South Korea, and says, "Boy, that was a success." Right? right? Exactly. I mean, this is that these sorts of those sorts of solutions are not are not solutions of peace. Right? They're they're solutions of of kind of this I don't know temporary end end to conflict and. I I think a lot of it, you know, it's it's where you, you had mentioned in the intro as well that this is where, in in some ways, the if if the U.S. and Western powers want to sort of have influence, this is you know where maybe they could do that. I, one of the parts points that Mellon made in her her article as well was about how World War One began with everyone thinking this would be a quick war, right? And so everyone thought they could win quickly, and and that quickly gets drawn out into trench warfare. But the end result is nobody had thought past a short-term, you know, uh, conflict. And that's, I think, true here. You know, Vladimir Putin, I think maybe it was in that article, talked about, like, you know, troops were sent with their dress uniforms expecting a, uh, a parade. And I think nobody really thought Ukraine would hold out this long. But the end result also now is, you know, the 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 Western, you know, the NATO support, um, Russia, every, like, nobody has really thought forward because nobody really imagined it lasting this long. And Boy, it's time to think about that. It is, right? And then the other thing, I know we got to move on, but the other interesting thing about is, is is sort of structural forces, right? We can think about structural forces that push countries into war. And we think about Russia, Ukraine, it makes a lot of sense, right? It's sort of uh, expansion of NATO was, was uh, you know, frustrating to Russia, right? So there's these, these sort of structural dynamics, but then also the role of agency, right? If we're thinking about an end to this war... It's hard to think about an end to the war that doesn't involve Vladimir Putin, right? His agency is so important in terms of launching this war, and it's probably going to be central to ending the war. And whether that means he is somebody who's willing to sit down at at the negotiating table or whether his removal brings about the end, right? I, I can't, I can't, I can't see an end to this war that isn't central or somehow, you know, intimately connected to Vladimir Putin in one way or the other. Well, and along that line, I, again, b- before we move on, I, when we first started talking, we were talking about uh, this kind of, you know, the, the end of World War One and this tendency to kind of punish or whatever. The, to, to play it out, there's another inter- the other interesting analogy is the end of World War Two, where the U.S. sort of took this uh, was willing to work with countries that were enemies, right? I mean, to work with Japan and Germany and the Marshall Plan and invest and recognize that like incorporating them into the international system. And and it, the idea of that, if if we end up in a situation where Putin is gone, it becomes an opportunity to go back and sort of correct some of the errors from the 90s, right? Which is to really fully support and and help, uh, help uh, in, encourage democracy and economic development and openness or whatever and in Russia. But the interesting, the, the part that I find interesting about that is the, the reason we were willing to do that in World War II with Germany and Japan was because of the threat of the Soviet Union. And I think about now and the threat of China, and maybe this is the, the opportunity, but in some ways it, it, it provides a, an analogy that says, well, maybe we can be optimistic about America and NATO's willingness to embrace and support Russia. But that's also offset by this negative uh, analogy, which says, boy, that that also feeds into this notion of a, a new Cold War with China as well. I mean, it, this the extent that you can sort of look at all the permutations of these analogies is really fascinating. I, I like that a lot, especially the idea of getting a redo of the end of the Cold War, right? That that, that didn't work out well the first time because basically we, the United States declares victory and leaves. And this would be a chance, if there is regime change in Russia, to try to do it in a better way and, and maybe use that World War II analogy. I love analogy. 
analogies. This is great. I know we got to move on, but that was a lot of fun. <laughs> it was fun. Well, let's let's shift gears pretty substantially here. So, I, the, you know, we're talking about the end of things, the end of the uh, of the Ukraine war, possibly um, when that might come. But we're going to shift gears and talk a little bit about the the end of Trumpism and whether or the end of Trump, at least, and when or if that might come. So, last week we talked about the indictment of former President Trump on thirty seven federal charges related to his handling of classified documents. We also talked about the fact that um, most elected Republicans were still reluctant to break with him, despite the overwhelming evidence that was presented in these in these indictments. This week, it's possible that we've started to see a shift of sorts. Many people in Trump's orbit have spoken very bluntly and very critically about the former president, including former Defense Secretary Mark Esper, former Attorney General Bill Barr, former National Security Advisor John Bolton. Um, and Donald Trump continues to be a defense attorney's worst nightmare, um, speaking openly about the charges, defending himself in oftentimes bizarre ways. Uh, most notably, Trump sat down with Fox News' Brett Baer on Monday for an extended interview. Trump apparently thinks he killed the interview. He thought it was fantastic. Everybody else seems to think it's a disaster. We're going to play some clips of that interview here in, in a minute. But, uh, you know, Bill, most of the rising criticism of Trump in Republican circles is uh, still coming from former administration officials and not from current office holders. But I still think it's noteworthy. And, and the fact that Fox News is potentially taking, uh, or at least parts of Fox News are potentially taking a harsh line with the president is maybe even more significant. So uh, let's kind of dig into this and let's talk a little bit about whether we're seeing the beginning of the end of Trump's reign over the party, or if this is just another in a long line of events that seem to be significant, but in the end mattered little. So uh, where, where do you want to start with this last week and kind of making sense of, of Donald Trump? Well, it was it's really something. It, I, it felt like it was a coordinated effort between Bill Barr coming out and giving a couple interviews and I think he is he was the most most scathing of Trump's behavior and basically saying that this guy is toast right that he he uh, you know it's clear that he is engaged in illegal behavior um, and that he should be nowhere near uh, a presidential authority anymore I mean I think he was the most vocal but also John Bolton who's been out there before but then Mark Esper it felt like three former high-ranking officials coming out and publicly criticizing him and I, I don't know if there was any coordination behind the scenes but it did feel that way. And then when you also bring in the, the, the Fox News interview, it felt like there was a bit of a shift. Now, that being said, what's really interesting is if you look at the poll numbers and 538 came out with a breakdown of the poll numbers pre and post indictment. And they're, they're like 53. What is it? I can't remember the exact number. I think I have it here. Uh, he's at 53.5 and he was 53.5 before he's at 53.5 afterwards. There's been no movement at all in terms is of that. that. Is that among Republic? Like, what is that approval rating? And like, what's that? So this is okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in the Republican primary, he's currently at fifty three point five percent. So the primary. So, I'm sorry, the primary. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. Yep. Uh, yep. So you know, the Republican primary voters, it hasn't dinged at all. But to your point, I think you're seeing an effort. Now, we'll see whether this effort is successful or not, but there are former officials and high-ranking positions in that Trump administration who are saying he should no longer be considered a legitimate candidate. I, you know, I think that's that's the start of something. We'll see whether it gets traction or not. Uh, Trump has been proven to be fairly bulletproof up to this point, but I, I think this is a, certainly a significant development. What do you think? Yeah, no, I mean, I think first of all, that I hadn't seen those numbers, but 53% and that it's unmoving is 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 remarkable. But it's also one of those where 53% in a prime primary of a party where you're supposedly the shoe-in candidate right. isn't great either, right? I mean, he's a former president. Um I, now, I, again, what is I think likely to happen is what we saw uh you know, 8 years 7 years ago when when the there were enough people running against him that they sort of divided the vote, but but it's not exactly a sign of strength. But yeah, I mean, I think it's it is telling that you're starting to see it's not just that I, there have been people who have spoken out in the past but it feels like it's been kind of an isolated thing here and there so to see a whole bunch of people in response to this um i i think i think maybe more than anything else the fox news if fox news turns on him that's going to have a, a big impact so uh, should we play some of these clips from Let's this do it. Bear Let's interview? Do it, yes. so, so th this first one is a, is a i mean the, the interview itself is full of uh, it's there's <laughs> 
it's kind of crazy. Um, so it's worth kind of going out and finding some clips, but uh, I'm going to play a couple. The first one is um, where Brett Bear is asking him about the people around him and, and kind of talking about this, the fact that people are uh, sp- uh, speaking out against him. In 2016, you said that. I'm going to surround myself with only the best and most serious people. Well, I did do that. This and we time, had tremendous look. We had the best economy we've ever had. This the world time has ever seen. Your vice president, Mike Pence, is running against you. Yeah. Your ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley, she's running against you. Your former secretary of state, Mike Pompeo, said he's not supporting you. You mentioned National Security Advisor John Bolton. He's not supporting you either. You mentioned Attorney General Bill Barr. Uh, says you shouldn't be president again. Uh, calls you the consummate narcissist and troubled man. You recently called and uh, Barr a, a gutless pig. Uh, you're second defense secretary is not supporting you, called you irresponsible. This week, you and your White House called your White House chief of staff, John Kelly, weak and ineffective and born with a very small brain. You called your acting White House chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, a born loser. You called your first secretary of state, Rex Tillerson, dumb as a rock. And your first defense secretary, James Mattis, the world's most overrated general. You called your White House press secretary, Kayla Kennedy, milquetoast. And multiple times, you've referred to your transportation secretary, Elaine Chao, as Mitch McConnell's China loving wife. So why did you hire all of them in the first place? Because I hired 10 to 1 that were fantastic. We had a great economy. We had phenomenal people in charge of the economy. We had phenomenal people in the military. I'm not a fan of Millie and I'm not a fan of certain of the television people. But I knocked out ISIS. I defeated ISIS. They said, Mattis, it would take three years, and I don't think we can do it. I did it in a period of, like, four weeks. There's a lot of people not, who praise you for your policies. I just said true. that. That's true. Well, I mean, you just went through a list. But don't forget, for everyone you say, I had 10 that love us. And one thing happens, I find, with... In 2016... So... Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I realize that was a long clip, but I, I mean, my first thought is that, I mean, it, it's a, it's a pretty damning list of comments, right? I mean, that is the, the people who are close and, and I think it's, it is noteworthy how many of them are in sort of a national security kind of, uh, environment who are, who are critiquing him. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, that's, that, that's, it's not a one or two people. This is a, this is a long list of people who are outspoken. And I think, I mean, it's, it is brutal, but, and good on Brett Baer yeah. for like, he was prepared. He had it lined up. He was ready to throw it back at, at, at Trump. I mean, it, it's that's I don't know. I mean, it feels like any other person, again, who didn't have sort of the clasp, the grasp on a party, the cult of personality couldn't recover from that sort of criticism. But uh, I, I don't know. I mean, what do you what do you think about that? Well, clip? absolutely. And I think to start with your, your point about Brett Baer, right? This was this was not just an accidental question, right? This was an intentional. I mean, the whole interview felt that way where he was. He was not going to let some of the the misdirection, the disinformation, the lies go. And he was going to ha- ask hard questions. It's a really, really hard question, which gets to this this idea that if you're such a brilliant man and you're hiring the best and the brightest, why why are they trashing you? Why are you calling them names? Right. I mean, this is this sort of gets to the core of his his ability as a leader to manage people. And. Boy, you know, when you've got that many of your, like you said, national security, and these were the heavy hitters in the administration. There, are, I can't think of anybody really right now of the heavy hitters who are defending him at this point. Either they've sort of gone away uh, and are are no longer a public figure, or they're they're saying things like this. So it's a. Uh, yeah, I mean, good on Brett Baer for asking hard questions, but also I think this is a hard question for Trump to address, right? If if you're so smart and if you bring in such good people, why do they say say such bad things about you, and why do you say bad things about them? Does it? I, so, I, how much do you think it matters? I mean, this comes back to this notion of to the extent that he has a grasp on the the party base, it doesn't really matter. And I feel like in the past, these sorts of comments would have shaken the base's willingness to support him. But it felt like at some point there was this shift, right, where it's not that uh, it's not that the party has has pointed to Trump and the people and the, the Republican base is following. It's that it's become Trump's base and he can turn them against the Republican Party. So, I mean, it, it is I think it is telling that so many of those people are people who don't have anything on the line. They're not running for office. And the ones who are the Mike Pence's and uh, the Nikki Haley, who he mentioned, who are both running against him. It's notable that he says they're both running against him, but they're they're walking this very delicate line where they're not critiquing him or criticizing him directly. Even Ron DeSantis, this like, you know, where they, that has become sort of the defining feature of 
of of that campaign of the the Trump DeSantis thing is this back and forth attacking. Even DeSantis is careful not to directly attack. Trump. So is, are the people who are running just still kind of waiting to see what happens and how this plays out? Or, or do you think it indicates that Trump doesn't have anything to worry about? Well, it's, it's a really it's an interesting question, right? I think I think it connects to the documents case, right? This wouldn't I don't think we would see this happening if it wasn't for the indictment on, you know, the classified documents. It appears that has given some of these individuals a little bit of space. So like, you know, like the Pence and the DeSantis who will sort of subtly criticize but then it's created space for Bill Barr and others to say this is totally unacceptable. This is this is dangerous behavior, right? So this this case, and I think you've made this point in the past. There's something simple about this, right? The idea that yeah. these are documents you're not supposed to have them. He doesn't have good answers for that, um, and maybe there's a sense that the Republican base would respond to this if it comes from Fox News, if it comes from Republican heavy hitters, that you can maybe move the needle a little bit. We will see. Maybe not. Maybe he is truly Teflon, but. It, at least it feels like there's an effort to do that. Um, 538 also was mentioning that in the polling of, of Trump, one thing that stands out is if he's found guilty, uh, 57% of the public say he shouldn't serve, right? And that, that means that's drifting into some Republican territory there. So it does feel like yeah. that's a deal breaker. Um, you know, they'll maybe give him the benefit of the doubt for the indictment, but if he's found guilty of this, a majority of the country is saying time to move on. And so maybe these these guys are starting to kind of use that as a, a movement to kind of create some space with, with Trump. I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if it'll be successful, but you can feel it. No, I think that's a really good point. And, and I do think I, to continue with our discussion of analogies, we've talked about the analogy of Watergate before. And I, and I think we live in a culture where we expect there to be instantaneous impacts of these things. A new story breaks and immediately people change their mind. And that's not what happens. And you can see that with Watergate, where Nixon retained support of a, a big part of the Republican Party for a long time. And it was only as the sort of the evidence built up and became increasingly clear that that started to uh, uh, crumble. And even at the end, he still had support of a lot of people. And so I think that's where yeah, with these cases moving forward, more and more of the evidence is going to be in the news. You're going to, if it, it gets to the point of a trial, that's going to be in the news every night. And those sorts of, of uh, issues will break through in a way that, that it's not going to happen within a week of the announced indictments. People can still feel like this is a sham uh, right now, but as, as it stays around for a long time, I think that will, uh, that will start to change. I, I think well, we, we can talk a little bit about this is where the role of Fox News yeah. comes in a little bit. I mean, I, I had a conversation with my parents when they were here uh, for my son's graduation, in which uh, we were uh, we were he my my parents watched Fox News. They turned it on, and you know I, they said something about how I don't. They said something about how I don't like it, and I said that's I have opinions. I have strong opinions, but um, and it was a con we had a conversation. It was great, but like it was clear that they were unaware of the sort of the details of the Tucker Carlson the the Dominion voting system because it's not reported on Fox News. Right. right. And so it's one of those where if Fox News starts to push back and change, I, I'm kind of curious to see how much that will change. Well, maybe that yeah. is a good we, let's play another clip because because that wasn't the only time that uh, Brett Baer pushed back against uh, Trump. So let me play one more clip here. What do you say to that female independent suburban voter who feels that way to win her back? First of all, I won in 2020 by a lot. OK. You Let's know, get that straight. I won in 2020. You know that this, and if you look at all of the tapes, if the you look at shows. everything that you want to look at, you take a look at Truth to Vote, where they have people stuffing the ballot boxes on tapes, or President, let's go to recent. Well, wait a minute. Let's go to recent. FBI Twitter. Let's go to recent. The 51 agents. All corrupt stuff, Brett. Understand about the all, Hunter Biden. Well, no, but that's cheating on things, the election. But that's cheating on the election. You lost the 2020 election. Uh, Brett. Uh, you take a look at all of the stuffed ballots. You take a look at all of the things, including things like the 51 intelligence there were, agents. There were recounts in all of the swing states. There was not significant right, widespread We're trying fraud. to get recounts, real recounts, not just numbers of votes Widespread cast. corruption. There was not a sense of that. There were lawsuits, more than 50 of them, by your lawyers, some in front of Freddie, judges, Freddie. judges that you appointed. Look at Wisconsin. That came out with Wisconsin no evidence. Is, Wisconsin has practically admitted it was rigged. Other states are doing the same right now, and it's continuing. There have been reviews it was a rigged of every election. potential case of voter fraud in six battleground states, and they found fewer than 475 cases. You know why? Because they didn't effective. look at the right things. Okay, Brett. are you going they to were be counting? They were counting ballots, not the authenticity of the ballot. The ba 
All right. So that, yeah. that that's a fascinating clip because it shows the willingness of Brett Baer to push back again. And I don't know how representative he is of Fox News. It also shows the extent to which like Trump is so engrossed or in, in this lie that there's there's like no he's like detached from the reality anymore. But I, what, what do you any thoughts oh, on, that, yeah. on that clip? Well, because we think about you look at the polling, what they say, you know, a large percentage of the Republican Party does feel that the, the election was stolen. And so how do you change that? It, it, that doesn't come from Democrats saying that the election wasn't stolen. It comes from Fox News and it comes from Republicans saying, hey, Mr. President, the election wasn't stolen and slowly convincing the base. And and so this, like, it... it Brett Baer is being reasonable. He's being thoughtful. He's citing the evidence. He's saying, Mr. President, this didn't happen. And Trump comes off as a bit of a conspiracy theorist, right? So it's it's totally different coming from Fox News than coming from MSNBC, right? And so I think this is a big deal. I'm really curious to see whether this has an impact or is Brett Baer pushed out, right? Did they say, oh, you're a Republican in name only now, right? I mean, what is the reaction to this? But I think it's consistent with our sort of that first audio clip where it does feel like there is a movement, an attempt to sort of seize upon um, the indictment to say, let's have a broader conversation about, you know, your candidacy and what you've done to the country. So, yeah, I, I, I find that really fascinating. How about you? Well, I mean, I, yes, I think this is I think Fox News holds uh, a lot of the blame for sort of the level of partisanship and detachment from, uh, you know, fact based uh, uh, yeah. politics that we that in the world that we live in. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, this is where the indictment stuff comes back around as well, even if it's not necessarily change. I, I don't know. I mean, if it starts to appear that Trump is doomed or toxic or whatever, that's where, you know, the, the uh, Fox News might start stepping back. Um, and and that that does matter, and I and I think it's it's really fascinating to watch. The other part of that clip that I find fascinating is the the fact that they exist in different worlds, right? We've talked about like the how the the sort of Republican um, you know ecosphere is like a totally separate thing. You can see it play out there, in which Brett Baer is talking about you know the, there have been these investigations, there have been these cases, and Trump's referring to you know the FBI, Twitter, and fifty one agents, and that's stuff that like you know I don't even yeah. I, you know I'm a political and I'm not I'm like not exactly clear what he's talking about, but I guarantee you that people in the sort of conservative universe, if I if I sit around watching Fox News all day, that would be resonating with me. And so it's kind of the clash of these two different uh, uh, universes within the kind of conservative um, uh, uh, universe here. And and yeah, I mean, it's it will be a, a question of just how you know, how far gone is the, is the base in terms of, you know, buying into the, the Trump talking points, I, I guess. And this is, this, it feels, I, I don't know if this could have happened a year ago or two years ago. I don't know if Fox News, Brett Baer, or any of them would have pushed in this way. So, so clearly there is some institutional support for saying it's time to, to put a little more pressure on the president. So that's, that's great. Well, sh should we get to the the final the final so the defense that that uh, Trump puts out there for the document case? Yeah, I mean, this gets around to the idea that that Trump is, uh, you know, if you're a, a, an attorney, he's a terrible client. But <laughs> one last clip we'll play for you. Well, why not just hand them over then? Because I had boxes. I want to go through the boxes and get all my personal things out. I don't want to hand that over to Nara yet. And I was very busy, as you've sort of seen. Yeah, but I've according very, to the indictment, busy. you then tell this aide to move to other locations after telling your lawyers to say you'd fully complied with the subpoena when you hadn't. But before I send boxes over, I have to take all of my things out. These boxes were interspersed with all sorts of things, uh, golf shirts, clothing, pants, shoes. There were many things. Oh, I would say much, <laughs> much more. Not that I know of, but not that I know of. But everything was declassified. Oh, man. <laughs> it's interesting there. I mean, he's making the defense that he basically needed some more time to get his socks and his shoes and his golf shirts out of these boxes, <laughs> right? which I think legally is going to get him some trouble because what happened is there, there was a subpoena. And again, we are not legal experts, from, but for sort of reading about this, apparently if a subpoena you can request, your lawyers can say, hey, we can't accomplish all of this in the time frame that you are suggesting. We can do part of it. We can ask. There are ways to do this. You can't. But what you can't do is send back and say, we've complied with the subpoena and then hide a right. whole bunch of boxes. Right. Right. So. And then, <laughs> and then, 
talk about it on national TV with, in a way that acknowledges that you knew those documents were there and you just couldn't get to them. Cause I, I don't know that like when you're, when you have a, a subpoena from federal law enforcement that like, I don't have time to get my shirts out is enough is like a, is a valid defense. <laughs> like, that's, that's great. And so it, it is both a, it is, it's a nonsense defense, but it is simultaneously acknowledging that he knew he had these documents. He knew he had to turn them over and he just couldn't get around to it. But uh, while alongside all of these documents and conversations with his attorney talking about moving them. So he had time to move them around, but not time to get his golf shoes out of the box with, the, which of course it's perfectly reasonable that he stores his golf shirts with his top secret documents. <laughs> right. right. And if you're going to come up with a bogus defense, at least say you had like more complicated papers. Like we needed to go through and make an assessment. I mean, it, it takes me 10 minutes to go through and grab golf shirts out of a box right now. If you got to go through papers and make some assessments. So no, I mean, it, it is, you're right. It, if you're a lawyer, you want Trump to say nothing, right? There was a clip going around this last week of OJ, and OJ was saying like the best advice he got was his lawyer said, "Don't say a thing," and he was saying, "Donald, shut up, don't say a thing." Right? I mean, that's Donald needs to listen to OJ Simpson and stop <laughs> doing interviews uh, because he's he's only gonna make his his own legal situation worse. Um, I mean, Jack Smith is they're they're writing all this stuff down, and this will be part of the trial when they try to make a particular defense. They're gonna say, "Well, no, you did an interview." you where you said you know you knew you had these documents right and um yeah it's it's just oh it's it's a terrible terrible legal strategy if i had a nickel for every time you look to oj for life guidance bill i'd be right. <laughs> said something no, that oj simpson is the more rational thinker at this right, point right no, I mean, I, I think I think more than anything that the the thing that leads me to come around to the fact that he's going down is this right his inability to and and I think he's gotten away with he's gotten away for so long with throwing out a bullshit excuse and getting away with it that he doesn't he doesn't even try he thinks he can win the political battle or whatever but it's it's the unwillingness to even try that I, like I, a jury's going to look at this and I think it's one thing where if he's if he's I don't know if he's not doing these sorts of interviews and throwing out these kinds of claims they could make an argument. Uh, they could try to put together some sort of argument that might win over, you know, a, a jury in terms of reasonable doubt. But when you're doing this and throwing together these so easily, like, I don't know, uh, just torn apart excuses, I, it, it's just, it's like, it's going to piss off jurors in, in the long run. I think so. I mean, this, this, this unwillingness to, uh, acknowledge any responsibility to cooperate at all. The unwillingness to keep his mouth shut is this is, this is going to be the thing that dooms him in the end. Exactly. And he's not taking this seriously. And these are very, very serious charges. So it, uh, yeah, no, I, uh, I mean, it's comical, but if I was the one facing jail time, criminal charges, I think I, I would, I would be taking it way more seriously. So you're a little more stable of an individual, though, too, I think. <laughs> I did just cite OJ. I don't know. <laughs> All right. Well, we should transition to our third topic. Uh, and uh, we're going to be looking at something that has been flying under the radar a bit, but raises some really important questions about free speech and its relationship to disinformation. Uh, recently, congressional Republicans, as well as conservative activists, have begun mounting legal campaigns against universities, think tanks, and private companies that are studying the spread of dis disinformation. They accuse these researchers of colluding with the government to suppress conservative speech. Their argument is that scholars and researchers studying disinformation in politics are violating the free speech rights of conservatives. Essentially, their attempt to explain and expose disinformation undermines the free speech rights of conservatives to freely engage in disinformation. Um, Representative uh, Jim Jordan, who is the committee chairman leading the investigation, has called this the censorship of disfavored speech. Uh, targets include Stanford, Clemson, New York University, the University of Washington, the Atlantic Council, the German Marshall Fund, uh, the National Conference on Citizenship, all nonpartisan, non-governmental organizations in Washington, D.C. Uh, the House Judiciary Committee has focused much much of its questioning on two collaborative projects. Uh, one was the Election Integrity Partnership, uh, which Stanford uh, and University of Washington formed before the 2020 election to identify attempts to suppress voting, uh, reduce participation, confuse voters, or delegitimize election results without evidence. Uh, the other, also organized by Stanford, was called the Virality Project and focused on the spread of 
of disinformation about COVID-19 vaccines. Phil, this is an interesting legal argument, but it also strikes me as extraordinarily dangerous. Uh, what do you make of this attempt by Republicans to curb efforts to expose disinformation? I mean, so, so beyond uh, the legal part of this, just to begin with the argument itself, there's there's an incredible irony in all of this, in which they are essentially in the name of free speech, yeah. like our ability to to say what we want to say, are launching lawsuits to prevent other people from saying what hey, they right. want to say. I mean, they, they're, they're arguing that in the, in the name of free speech, you can't say that uh, my, you know, you don't have the right to speak freely about your concerns about what I say. So, uh, you know, from a sort of logic argumentation perspective it's this is i mean this is nonsense right i mean it is it is if it's there's one thing about like i don't know if you wanted to bring some sort of you know kind of defamation lawsuit or what if, if you can prove that these groups are putting out incorrect information that they know to be incorrect that's one thing but just to say that that hey you you know you saying that my, the stuff that i am uh, you know you pointing to my arguments and saying that they are uh, inaccurate or misinformation that, that that can't happen is itself. I mean, that is the much more fundamental threat on free speech. I mean, my suspicion, my, my, uh, my expectation would be that this is not going to go far in a court of law. This is like, this is just not, but I, I don't, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know the nuances of the case or, or how it's being argued. But I think, um, this is extremely, like you were saying, it's extraordinarily dangerous. I think it is extraordinarily dangerous in that, both from a political standpoint in, in the which it is using the banner of free speech to shut down speech, which is in and of itself bad. Even if this is like a, a case that is tossed out, the amount of um, like money and time and resources that will get tied up in all of this from oftentimes, again, nonprofits or academic researchers who don't have it, it has a chilling effect. Like I would imagine that even if these cases go nowhere, they will have had some impact on the willingness of people to work on study these sorts of things. And that in and of itself is bad as well. What, what do you think? Yeah, that intimidation point you were making was really interesting. I hadn't really fully thought through that. But you're right. If I mean, think about basically they're targeting academics like us who do research and we're we're easily intimidated because we don't have a lot of protection right now you've, you've got universities stanford and whatnot that hopefully will come to their defense i think what's interesting to me is is they're not arguing or so the researchers are not arguing that you're not allowed to use disinformation they're simply pointing out that what you are saying is disinformation right uh, they're just fact checking exactly right and i think so i think part of this movement here is trying to preempt the next point which is should there be some regulation on disinformation should social media should the government should television radio whatnot should they have some regulation to say that there is you're not allowed to spread disinformation right but these scholars are just basically saying like you you're spreading disinformation uh and so then now you're gonna get called in front of congress to say like you're preempting my speech no no you can you can say disinformation i'm just going to correctly categorize it as, you know, disinformation, right? So it's it, it strikes me that they're trying to prevent a movement towards actually regulating that. And I think that's a different conversation. Um, one I think we need to have, given the way in which social media can uh, spread disinformation. But yeah, I, I think there's, there's you're right, the legal argument is not very strong. I think it's, it's mostly trying to, to flip the political debate. Well, I mean, it's a, from a from a sort of uh, I don't know from a political philosophy standpoint or, or angle, you know, the the, the idea of rights. I, I feel like we've even had this conversation at a in a shallow way in the past. The, the idea of rights has long been this notion of they're all in in a sort of pluralistic society in America. There are all these different rights, and they conflict. And so, what we are trying to do is figure out how do we navigate, how do we set up a society that like sort of maximizes or maintains those rights as much as possible. And it feels like we've shifted into an era in which the understanding of rights has become that it, they are, it is my rights, right? It's not about my rights in a community. It is about my rights and anything that infringes on my rights is inherently wrong. Not that there has to be any balancing out. And so this is the, you are telling me that I'm wrong. That infringes on my rights and how dare you. And so the idea of like, this is back to the pandemic, right? The no, the notion of, of like navigating individual rights in a collective community um, is like out the window. And it is this much more, I, I think about Tom Nichols who talks about kind of this sort 
sort of, you know, uh, infant approach to politics in which it's just this sort of selfish, like it's just my rights and how dare anyone else tell me what to do. Um, and that's kind of what, it, how you see it playing out. I don't think that's limited to just the, 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 right, but it's particularly prominent right now amongst um, supporters of of Trump and whatnot as well. I think. Uh, this is a really great point you're making, right? This idea, like, don't tread on me, right? You know, like, I, I have my rights. And I mean, this is yeah, fine. You, you, you have a right to try to spread disinformation, but somebody else also has the right to point out and have real conversation, right? I would argue, like, you know, the idea that you can't call somebody else out for disinformation, that's the real potential threat to speech, right? Again, uh, you know, I don't know. This, You're right. This gets really, really convoluted in, in a dangerous way where ultimately, if Jim Jordan and that group is allowed to win this legal argument, then you're no longer able to call people out for spreading lies, right? That that seems like really, really dangerous sort of totalitarian societies where you can't, uh, you know, bring truth to power sort of dynamics. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's bad. Not good, Phil. And and if we talk about the, the sort of American notion of, you know, freedom of speech and whatnot, it, it is, again, back to the, the, the founding, right? It is this notion that government's not going to limit your ability to say things. And what these cases are doing is asking the government to step in to tell people they can't do this. So the, the people who are out there saying this are not, you know, it's not the government infringing on anyone's right to speech. But what the what the sort of conservative movement here is doing is asking government to do just that, to infringe on people's right to uh, our ability to say stuff. Yeah. It's 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 yeah problematic. Absolutely. I guess. Well, we <laughs> this, this is a, we got to set this topic aside as fascinating as it is and talk about wax museums, Phil. All right. All right. So we spoke earlier uh, in the episode about the the mood potentially shifting in regards to former President Trump, which is why this next story is so relevant. Uh, apparently, the wax figure of Donald Trump at the Louis Tussauds Palace of Wax in San Antonio, Texas, had to be temporarily removed this week for repairs due to the fact that, quote, the figure of Mr. Trump had been punched and scratched so much, according to The New York Times. Now, apparently, other wax figures have had similar issues in the past, including other presidents, Adolf Hitler, Sean Diddy Combs. I find it interesting that he's included in that. His wax figure was apparently punched so hard that his uh, that it was decapitated. So anyway, I, Bill, I've included a photo of Trump's wax likeness in our life, in our outline for you. I, I also made it this week. If you go to the website, you can see it as this week's uh, cover photo. I, my theory is that these attacks are at least 50% a result of the fact that this wax figure of Trump is something from my nightmares. But... <laughs> Bill, when we went to San Antonio together years ago, the only thing you wanted to do was to visit the wax museum. So you're a little bit of an expert. Uh, why do people hate wax likenesses of Donald Trump? I, there's so many things to break down in this story, right? You know, so I, I've done a little more research on this. So if you go to the San Antonio Wax Museum, you got to plop down $24.99, right? 25 bucks to see more than 200 life-size, life-size figures on display, including uh, Vladimir Putin, uh, North Korea's leader Kim Jong-un, and Dwayne Johnson. AKA the rock. So the people, I mean, I, I, I'm sort of curious about the desire to go see people in wax form, but you're also right. You know, it is. So the Trump thing, like this picture is spooky. Um, I'm not all surprised that people want to punch this for both. It's uh, what it looks like. And also Trump's politics, but, but you're right. It's not alone. Um, they, apparently the ears were torn off the Obama uh, wax thing six different times. Uh, wow. Bush's nose was punched in. Um, I guess in Berlin, they also have one of these uh, museums, and a wax figure of Adolf Hitler was was beheaded. Um, so apparently, just wax museums bring out the worst in people. Um, let's see what else. Uh, let's see in Slovenia. So Slovenia also has one, uh, and there was a uh, first lady Melania Trump. Uh, they set it on fire. <laughs> so like, how? So there's something about people and wax museums that bring out the worst of humanity, right? And I think Donald Trump is especially provocative, so I'm not entirely surprised, but it's like people lose their minds when they go in these museums. Well, again, looking at this picture, it's not surprising. It's like a, it's like a, I don't know. It's like scarring psychologically to see this. uh, Yeah. I mean, there, there is some sort of, probably some like really fascinating psychological study here. There's some deeper argument about like, I mean, all the, we, the, the figures you listed aren't all political, but it's probably telling that so many of them are political and people have really strong opinions about politics. And this is your chance to, uh, you know, like unleash your, your anger or frustration in a way that's, I guess, relatively safe. Although, (laughs) 
apparently these wax figures, despite the uh, the the lack of likeness to the reality, uh, apparently take hundreds of hours to make. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's probably, you know, people who are just uh, uh, I don't know, who are just getting I don't know, getting out their frustrations for me, who is who is comes from a, you know, a German background in a southern, you know, southern Baptist church, like the idea of like breaking the rules right. in, a, in a wax museum would be, uh, I don't know, I would be very uncomfortable. Okay, with well, it, so but obviously, a lot of other people are that not. leads to a follow up question. Okay, so part of the problem, I think, is that they encourage you to take selfies, right? So most museums you go to, you're not allowed to touch this museum. You know, when you go to the wax museum, you're allowed to touch, right? So, so maybe like a little bit of touching causes people to think that the rules are gone and what's the difference between a selfie and me punching Donald Trump in the nose? (laughs) So so do you think if you were at one of these museums and and even though you are a good rule follower, if suddenly you're allowed to put your arm around one of these, maybe maybe suddenly that's harder to constrain yourself. I don't know. It's a good point. I feel like I read in one of these articles that they had one point because of damage that was being done, they moved it to the lobby. Was that the Trump figure? That may have been. They moved it to the yeah. lobby where like guards and like people could see it at all times. But that would just, to me, like further encourage the notion of they've put it out here because you're supposed to interact with it. I might as well just, I don't know if that would lead me to punching it or anything like that. But uh, yeah, maybe there's something to your. To one your of them arguments. they needed two guards for. Like what, what what's gone wrong in your life? Or how would you feel about the fact if you're if you're required to guard, you know, a wax. And it's not just you. you got to have a buddy to make sure that nobody attacks Mussolini or, or whoever like it the, is. Right. Hitler. Like, who who's making a wax figurine of Hitler right. in the first place? But secondly, uh, how do you, like, you just feel bad for the guy whose, like, job is to stand all day next to a wax figure of Hitler defending it. I, I would be tempted to be like, yeah, whatever. Do whatever you want. <laughs> right. I, I want to learn more about this. If any of our listeners are big wax museum fans and understand this, <laughs> please e- email us because I'm curious. Or if you've got selfies of you with I wouldn't say oh. punching them because that you know that's violating the rules but you know feel free to share more with us because I think this is one where it feels like we're we're poking the bear a little bit trying to understand the American political psyche I mean what you know what causes somebody to rip the ears off a of Barack Obama wax that, that you've got you've got real problems if you're doing that <laughs> I'll go out and live I there I would encourage I I would encourage our listeners, no matter what, whatever you do this week, at least take, you know, 20 seconds to Google Louis Tussauds, uh, Donald Trump, just so you can see this, this figure and be haunted by it in the way that I am. Well, why is his hair so long, right? You know, it's really creepy. <laughs> and his face so small. Right. Like, all the proportions are, are out of whack. And yeah, yeah. You know. I mean, if it, uh, you had 200 people involved in this, like they should have had somebody who could fix his hair and make his face a little less haunting. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right. On that note, we should wrap up phil remind everybody how they can stay connected with us and go see this picture yeah so the politics lab.com is the web page you can go there click on this week's episode right on the home page where it has the episodes listed you'll see it should pop up with this picture of donald trump so you can just go to the politics lab.com and see it but you can also find articles the foreign affairs article that we talked so much about is there um an article on the the uh, lawsuits regarding disinformation is on the web page as well so um there's a number of uh a uh, number of articles you can read there, and you can also find all our social media links um, on the webpage as well. Sounds fantastic. All right, Phil, you have a good week, and I'll see you next week. Bye, Bye, Bye Phil. Phil.